Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. That guy spent 30 years pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, you know. I mean, it is more than most people. But the Democratic Party is the last best hope for something that is still a democracy. The Republican Party has become an autocratic movement. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Stuart Stevens, who dedicated his life to getting Republicans elected. He worked with dozens of candidates, including George Bush and John McCain, and was extremely successful. Now, however, Stuart regrets the part he played in the rise of Trumpism. He's a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project which was the subject of a recent Showtime documentary, and his new goal is to counteract the movement he himself fostered. Stuart, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you, brother. It's great to be here. I have to make one small correction. I, I, it's a long and complicated history, but I actually never worked for John McCain. I did work for Mitt Romney. It's a long story. There was a time when my firm was sort of working with John McCain, but we actually never did work for John McCain, so it's easy to confuse. But we worked for Mitt Romney in 08 and in 12. He lost, by the way, in case you haven't heard that. But No, I've been paying attention. And I got to be honest, sorry for that error in the intro, but I felt kind of mean reading it. But your own self-assessment is brutal. I reread It Was All a Lie for this interview. The preface edition is amazing, by the way. For those who haven't read it, though, can you share the opening sentence or at least the opening sentiment? You know, Ken, there are a lot of people wrong about 2016, right? But it's really hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. I was wrong about the primary and the general. And when that happened, I had to ask myself, like, a lot, like, how is it that I didn't see this? I started asking myself, you know, a lot of hard questions. And in that kind of high school English teacher way, that if you can't write it, you don't understand it. I started writing about it just to make sense of it to me. And that led to this book. And... The, the opening of the book says, blame me. And I say that because I was very much part of building the Republican Party. If electing candidates, you could call that building the Republican Party, which I guess you could. I never worked in government. I never, as we would say in the biz, I never went inside. Everyone I worked for had the good sense to realize they should never let me near government. But it's sort of a trope of Washington books, like if only they had listened to me. I couldn't write that book because they did listen to me. I was lucky. I built the most successful Republican media consulting firm, worked in five presidentials, helped elect governors and senators in over half the country. Where you're in Ohio, I, I did all of John Kasich's races when he ran for Congress. Uh, Rob Portman worked for Bush there in 2004 and 2000, where we carried Ohio, barely. So, you know, one of the things that really drew me to the Republican Party was a concept of personal responsibility which I think, as far as the party's concerned, turned out to be a complete fraud. But I believed in it, and I didn't know any way to begin sort of looking at this without taking personal responsibility. I can't blame others. I was part of this. So that's really what led me um, to want to write that book. And then the book itself is sort of a 
history of sorts of the Republican Party post-World War II that kind of tries to get into explaining how we ended up where we are. You did a recent PBS interview in which I think you distilled that history to its essence better than anyone I've ever heard. Can you share your observation about the Eisenhower strain versus the McCarthy strain and the DNA metaphor? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating. I think when you step back and you look at the party, after World War II, there were pretty clearly two strands. There was an Eisenhower strand that was boring and governing and sane. And then there was a Joe McCarthy strand conspiratorial, xenophobic, often racist, non-governing. So those two kind of battled each other at times, different degrees of, say, dominance within the party. You know, it was a period in the 60s when they made a conscious effort to chase out the most extreme elements, John Burt Society, all of that. For people kind of of my political generation in the Republican Party of operatives, we were drawn to George, a lot of us were drawn to George Bush in this concept of compassion and conservatism. So, you know, I moved down to Austin in the spring of 99 to work for Bush. I wrote a book about that called The Big Enchilada. There's a group of us that we literally used to sit in the same room, me, Nicole Wallace, Michael Gerson, who was a columnist to the a Bush speechwriter, who really wrote much of the language of the Bush campaign and presidency, who became a Washington Post columnist, sadly died a couple of weeks ago. Matthew Dowd, um, who you see a lot on television, who was a strategist, pollster, Mark McKinnon. I don't think it's unfair to say that we assumed that the part of the party that we thought we were part of was a dominant part of the party. And we would emerge increasingly dominant, if only because the country was changing so much. So we looked at the failures of the party and said that they were failures the inability to attract more African-American voters. George Bush made a huge push to attract more Hispanic voters. And in fact, in 2004, which is the only time Republicans have won the popular vote in the presidential race since 1988, we hit a high watermark for Hispanic voters around 43, 44%. This was something that Bush felt very generally, which gets into the whole, you know, he was a Texas Republican. And, and Texas Republicans have a different history with Hispanics, really. It's very unique. I mean, you even see Ted Cruz, but it's kind of, we talk about that if you want to, but it's kind of a different conversation. And then Trump came along. And my belief, Ken, is that I just don't think that people change deeply held beliefs in a few years, unless there's some reason to. I, mean, I, I don't believe in UFOs. If we're on this show and a UFO lands, dude, I'll change my mind. But nothing like that happened. Why is your experience your awakening, if you will, so exceedingly rare. I mean, you you have some good company, Mike Gerson and, and others. Mike was actually the first guest we ever had on this show, and it's so sad to see his past. Yeah, so the Bush campaign assembled starting in the spring of 99. I moved to Austin in the spring of 99. I had worked with Carl Rove. I had never worked with then Governor Bush. McCall really assembled that team, and Mike Gerson was hired as a speechwriter. And I had worked for Senator Dan Coates. I'd done his campaigns, who Mike had worked for before. And I really didn't know Mike then. And it was interesting because I love Dan Coates, but I don't think anybody would have said, you know, Dan Coates is a great orator. So it's like, we're hired, they're hiring Dan Coates as a speechwriter. I was like, really? And then I started reading what Mike wrote. It was just brilliant. And I think one of the key tests of any campaign and 
of the successful campaigns is the degree to which you can develop your own language as a candidate. And there's a kind of almost dotted exercise you can go through. If you take campaign speeches, circle phrases that are relatively unique and memorable that are attributed to that campaign, that stick in the public conscious, probably that candidate wins. So, you know, when we were living there, and, you know, Austin, particularly then, particularly small town, we're all living together, more or less, I say together, just in a small town. You know, most of us were like, you know, going out to clubs every night at Austin. And McKinnon and I were, you know, getting up at six in the morning and going swimming at, you know, Big Eddie and doing all this stuff in Austin. And Mike was working quietly at a homeless shelter, which he never would have told anybody. The only way I found out, I had to find the guy or just like... Karen uh, Hughes was looking for him to like to do something, you know. And you know, Mike really—he really was the best of us. He was the real deal, and he never faltered. And when you read his stuff, I mean, I said before several times, you know, that I think years from now, when people look back at this era, there will be a handful of writers that people will read that will try to explain how this happened. And I think Mike Gerson and Pete Weiner are two that will be right at the top of the list. And it was a beautiful thing to watch him work with President Bush. They had a certain, within Governor Bush, uh, chemistry. And he was able to find a voice that was eloquent and aspiring for President Bush that did not seem mannered and did not seem phony. And I sat in a room many times when they would try these things out and, you know, Bush would, no, here's my version of this. And they would go back and forth, kind of like a, a duet. I don't think George Bush would have been elected president without Michael Gerson. 100% he wouldn't. I didn't realize that he was as ill as he was. It's a real loss. Yeah, it was sad. Really sad to Very sad. see his passing. And I re-listened to our interview. I got to uh, go back and listen 20. to it. I haven't heard it. I'm so glad you did that. I'll share it with you. As influential as that Bush fraternity has been in the Trump era, it still represents a vanishingly small percentage of Republicans that you would have expected would stand up and speak out. Why are you in such rarefied company? There aren't enough of you. Why do 99% of Republican operatives, uh, your word, why are they going along with Trumpism? You're asking me, another way to put it is like, why haven't I slept well in seven years? I'm asking you the million dollar question, but this is why I wrote a book trying to figure this out. I never in a million years would have thought the people that I work for would go along with Trump. I said it won't happen. And I was wrong for the most part, not entirely, but Mitt Romney didn't. I worked for pretty much all these Republican governors that haven't gone along with them, Phil Scott in Vermont. Charlie Baker, Massachusetts, Larry Hogan. I work for all those guys. I love those guys. They didn't go along with Trump, but most did. I can explain it in a political science. There's a subtext. I'll tell you why I'm asking, and I know you've covered the political science answer, but I have to believe there's a character-driven answer. I've read a little bit about your dad. I know something of Mike Gerson's personal story. I'm wondering if it's as simple as the values you're inculcated with growing up and that are somehow missing in the, so many. Look, I mean, my dad was a classic greatest generation guy, right? He grew up in Mississippi, 
went to Ole Miss Law School, became an FBI agent. Was living in New York when the war broke out, being an FBI agent, sort of chasing would-be German spies, having the time of his life and going to plays at night. When you think about it, a guy from Mississippi gets to live in Manhattan and like run around and chase spies and go to plays. Like, how great is that? And he was ordered, as these agents were, when he came down to round up Asian Americans as part of the internment process. And he did it for a day and he quit. And he then joined the Navy and had, I don't know if there's a good war, but had, a, you know, spent three years in the South Pacific, 28-hour landings. And like all these, most of these guys, you know, came back, never talked about it. In fact, much of his war stories I never knew until, you know, there's this wonderful history of World War II Museum in New Orleans. And part of what they have is an oral history program where they were sending people out to interview these vets before he lost them. And it was really in that interview that I learned a lot about what my father had done. Listen, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, I won life's lottery with my parents. But I look at these people and I can't, that's not, I know a lot of their parents, actually. I got to know some of these. And, you know, they're not unlike my father, as far as I can tell. The bottom line is I will never ask myself again how 1930s Germany happened. And when I started to write, it was all a lot. Really, it was sort of a self-education process, you know, and I did lots of reading. And probably the book that stuck with me more than any was the memoirs of a guy named Franz von Papen. And Franz von Papen was the Prussian aristocrat political leader in Germany who probably was more responsible for ushering Hitler in than anyone else. And justified it for decades afterwards, right? Wrote a extraordinary memoir in 1953. It came out in 54, which for reasons I can't understand is on Kindle. You can download it right now. All right, he's writing this 1953, right? So, like, things had gone a little sideways. Like, you know, 100 million people dead, you know, things like this. And he's still justifying it. And the way he justified it is what you have to understand is that we, the Prussian aristocrats, had lost touch with the working class. And they were either going to become Bolshevik, which there was a huge communist movement in, in Germany, or we needed a figure they could identify with that would stop them from going Bolshevik, and that was Hitler. So, and still justifying it. Otherwise, the capital of the Soviet Union would be you know, Berlin. And it's just extraordinary, even after all of that. And I think it's a number of factors. In the summer of 16, when it was clear Trump was going to be the nominee, I went around to a few prominent Republicans in a few states and tried to get them to run as favorite sons. Because if they did, and they took two to four or five points off the vote, there was no way Trump could get elected because, you know, the margins are that small. I had a 100% failure rate. But th what they all said to me was, look, we, the establishment, we can't put our thumb on the scale here. We have to just let Trumpism and this alt-right and this hate just wash out of the party and start to build over. If it's seen that there was a gimmick that we used to beat him, it's not going to kill it. And I was like, I get that. But like, what if Trump wins? And they're like, he's not going to win. And I wasn't probably very good at arguing that because I didn't think he was going to win. So I think the inability to imagine Trump has always benefited Trump. So why did these 16 other candidates or 15 other candidates in the primary with Trump, not attack Trump. It's because they attacked each other because you just wanted to get one-on-one -on -one with Trump. Because, I mean, give me a break. The Republican Party's not going to nominate a guy that talks in public about having sex with his daughter. I mean, yeah, look, let's get serious here. It's not going to happen. And then when it did, I think a lot of these people thought he was going to lose. And they just went along with it. Not all of them. Mitt didn't. 
And I think it is the greatest collapse of a moral center to a political party in American history. I don't know anything else to compare it to. I, I don't know. I mean, this is why I joined the Lincoln Project. I mean, I'm a guy that spent 30 years pointing out flaws on the Democratic Party, you know. So, I mean, there's more than most people. But the Democratic Party is the last best hope for something that is still a democracy. The Republican Party has become an autocratic movement. And all the elements for an autocratic movement to succeed are in place. You have the backings of a major party, Republican Party, if financiers, Peter Thiel, they have unlimited money. You have a propaganda wing in Fox and all that. You have a serious effort among serious people to develop a legal theory to justify it. If Georgia passes a law saying that the state legislature can overturn the popular vote, when the Georgia legislature overturns the popular vote, it's not going to be illegal. And you have shock troops. That's all you need. Now, are they going to win? You know, it reminds me, you know, the night of the election, talking about 2000, when the networks called Florida for Gore, you know, a little group of us got on the phone with these networks. And our pitch was this. Well, we can't tell you Bush is going to win Florida, but you can't tell us Gore is going to win Florida. It's just too close. And they pulled it back. And that's the way I feel about this. I can't tell you that side's going to win. I can't tell you they're going to lose, but I can tell you it's in doubt. And thinking that it can happen is the same mistake we made with Trump. So I don't know what to do but fight. In the Lincoln Project in October of 20, you know, I entertained the idea that, like, Trump loses, I can kind of quit doing this stuff. And then all this post-election stuff happens. And, like, I couldn't walk away. So here we are. Do you fear that conditions are being set for the return of Trump? I mean, he's definitely a weakened candidate. But absent the emergence of a clear and, I guess, unifying figure to oppose him in the Republican Party, it feels like 2016 redux. Yeah, so everybody, all these, you know, people like the National Review, you know, all the Republicans that know how to, which fork to pick up, you know, they're trying to invent Ron DeSantis. One of my great annoyances at the moment is we somehow have defined election deniers as those who go out and talk a lot about how Trump won. That's not what we should be doing. Anyone is an election denier who will not assert that Joe Biden won a free and fair election. And that's pretty much everybody in the Republican Party. That's Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis will not go out and say that Trump lost a free and fair election. Greg Abbott won't say it. Now, they don't go out there and run campaigns based on that, but they won't say it. And there is no attempt in a serious way to develop a coherent, moral, credible, center-right philosophy of government that the Republican Party would represent. You can't. I mean, look, I, I, you held a gun to my head and said, like, what does American conservatism mean today? I'd say, shoot me. I have no idea. Say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She has a theory of government, and she can articulate it. And you can argue with her. You can think she's crazy. You can think she's right. But you can have a conversation about it. You can't have a conversation about whether or not there are litter boxes in bathrooms in high schools, and that's the decline of Western civilization. That's not a governing philosophy. You can't have a conversation about a governing philosophy is to charter a plane, pick up a bunch of 
people who are in the United States legally applying for asylum, flying to Florida, and then flying to Massachusetts as a campaign stunt. That's not a governing philosophy. And there isn't one, except it's a white grievance party. It's, this is all about race, Kim. It's all about race. 1956, Eisenhower gets 44% of the black vote. 64 drops to seven and never came back. And 1980, Ronald Reagan wins this sweeping landslide, what, like 44 states or something, right? He got 58% of the white votes. 2008, John McCain lost to not particularly close election with 58% of the white vote. There you are. 85% of Trump's coalition is white. The country's 57, 60% white. And since we've been doing this thing, it's less. We're going to become a minority-majority party. Our country. I mean, all the Stephen Millers in the world aren't going to stop that. And the party has never been able to do the hard work necessary to appeal to non-white voters in large numbers. And there's a period in the late 80s and 90s, I, I can't believe I did this, where the Republican Party decided that the reason that we weren't doing well with African-American voters is because we didn't know how to talk to African-American voters. It's so embarrassing. It spawned this phenomenon of the RNC would hire these African-American consultants to come down and talk to us, and us being predominantly white campaigns, about how to talk to black people. We all sit in the room, and we all pay attention and take notes and listen seriously, and they would say things like, you have to talk about meaningful jobs, not just good jobs. And we were like, oh, and then we'd do it, and of course it wouldn't matter at all. And the problem wasn't that African-Americans didn't understand what Republicans were saying. The problem was they did understand what Republicans were saying. And Republican Party, I mean, we failed at this in Bush world, but at least we admitted it was a failure. I mean, Ken Melman in 2005, chairman of the party, ran the Bush campaign. He went out and gave a speech at the NAACP apologizing for the Southern strategy. It's a, ultimately a policy failure. They've never come up with a policy that would appeal to African-Americans. And this is all being played out in this Georgia runoff, which is next Tuesday. Because there's not four people in the world that think that Herschel Walker would be running against Warnock if Warnock wasn't black. So, you know, they sat in a room and said, like, how do we beat this black guy? They go, well, we got to have ourselves a black guy. Well, what, what about Herschel Walker, who lives in Texas, who was like, you know, kind of a big deal in Georgia? Well, well that's good. We'll get us a black guy. Because the only reason that, that African-Americans are voting for Warnock is because he's black. So now we've evened the scales. We're going to get more white votes than, than Warnock's going to get. And then we're going to win this thing. And, I mean, it is just so fundamentally condescending and unaware. So they put poor Herschel Walker up there. I mean, a guy, I don't understand how he gets through TSA. It just shows how little you care about the country. Georgia's, I work for the Republican. The reason they're having this race is because Johnny Isaacson died, the last senator. I worked for Johnny Isaacson. A wonderful man. You may not have liked some of his bows, but he's a wonderful human being. And look, they had Sam Nunn from Georgia. So, I mean, if Herschel got elected in the you know, six years, no one would ever say, you know, I'm going to walk across the room and ask Herschel what he thinks about this. That's where the party is. I think that race is one of the clearest pieces of evidence we've ever seen of the lack of a, not just a governing philosophy, but any seriousness about governing at all. And caring about the country. And caring about the country. But there is still a coherence to the Republican Party and the Republican strategy, and you call it out. It's about race and, and election denialism now. Which is about race. 
which is about race as well. You you write about this. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we don't talk about this enough. The whole not voting to certify was about race. All these areas where the votes were in question, right? They were strangely areas where, what does what Chicago and Detroit and Philadelphia have in common? Like, a lot of black people live there. And those are the areas, you know, Fulton County in Georgia, you know, Atlanta. Huh, wonder what? Maybe the voting machines work differently there. Or maybe, like, there's, like, black people. And that's what it's about. It was totally about, it was a Jim Crow vote. You know, Cindy Hyde-Smith, this woman who got appointed and now sadly elected the senator from Mississippi, my own state, you know, she said it. She said, you know, I voted for this because my voters supported Donald Trump. Okay, there you go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. You have called the Republican Party the greatest threat to democracy this country has faced since 1860. And I, I love the way you describe its anti-democratic instincts and in that you call out the official position of the Republican Party. This is from the new preface, which everybody should read, even, even if they've already read the book. The official position of the Republican Party as that Joe Biden is not a legally elected president, that Donald Trump was illegally removed from office, that 2020 wasn't a legitimate election. And here's the crux of the point, which means that it is the official position of the Republican Party that America is not a democracy. The dividing line in American politics is no longer ideology or policy. It's a line between those who believe in democracy and those who believe in it only when their side wins. And that hasn't changed. No, no. I think it's a real danger that we allow Carrie Lake to set the bar. What is it? Election denialism, like we're saying. Every day, every reporter in America who covers politics should be asking whoever they're covering, do you believe Joe Biden is president? Uh, Illegally elected. Now, they'll say, I accept Joe Biden. Well, I accept Putin. I don't mean I think he won an election, unlike you know President Trump, who called him and congratulated him on his election. <laughs> Damn unbelievable! Look, if you read "Call It a Democracy" by Ann Applebaum, 
which I go around giving out like watchtowers to random strangers at airports. Like, read this, read this. When you hear about me getting arrested, it's going to be because I was like, you know, passing these out. Or how democracies die by those two Harvard professors. You know, they make the point that democracies don't die in the modern world pretty much now because of coups. It's not like Allende in Chile. It's through the ballot box in the courtroom. And why is the Republican Party obsessed with Viktor Orban? Well, Viktor Orban is a white supremacist. I mean, before he came to CPAC, he gave a speech ranting against mixed races and still was accepted at CPAC. And why do they love Putin? So why is the, the pro-Putin movement in American politics within the Republican Party? They love Orban because he was able to usher Hungary from a democracy to sort of a faux democracy, which is what Putin did. And that's the path they want to go down. And, you know, one of the, the problems, run into it, I'm sure you do too, it, how to talk about this? Because you sound alarmist. And to me, it's kind of like a pandemic. You know, it, it, what you say at the beginning is going to be alarmist, but it, it's going to prove inadequate at the end. And I run into this all the time. Like, my, you know, I wrote this book and my old Republican friends, some of them angry, some of them just kind of in good faith, asked me, so, so are you saying that everybody who voted for Donald Trump was a racist? You know, like, what was it, 67 million Americans? And I go, well, first of all, there probably are 67 million racists in America, so let's don't get, like, all teed up about this, guys. But no, I think it means that something is more important to you than having a president than having a racist as president. And that's what's played out. So, look, 70% of the Republican Party now believes that we have an illegal president. So the 2024 election is going to be not between two parties that have different political views. It's between one party that believes we have a legally elected president, therefore we live in a democracy, and one party that believes they are running to depose an illegal occupant of the White House. So when you believe that, that kind of gives you a right to pretty much do what you want to because you're restoring democracy and maybe an obligation. And I find that extraordinarily dangerous, and I don't think it'll be different in 28. So maybe 32 would be the first time you'd elect a Republican who would go out and be able to win a primary and say that Donald Trump lost the election. I find that just extraordinarily dangerous. And look, you know, we started this new thing called Resolute Square because, you know, part of the problem is there has been a failure in our forms of journalism. Traditional journalism, and look, I, I spent half my life writing. I've published more articles than a lot of you know, professional journalists. The key of it was objectivity. That was a sacred grail. That was based upon there being some assumption of good faith on both sides. So how do you tell both sides of a lie? And that's part of the failure that we have now. Some of us connect with the Lincoln Project, with other people. We started this new thing called Resolute Square to build an alternative to MAGA media. And, you know, our approach is we're right, they're wrong. We're not going to both sides this. I don't want to understand the guy in the camp Auschwitz sweatshirt in the Capitol. I don't care. I just know the guy's evil and should be in jail. I don't want to understand a lot of these Trump voters. You know, I know them. I, I don't need to know more. And we have to, the Resolute Square, you know, we are biased. We say it, we're biased all the time for democracy. And that's what we need. We need to build an organization that can enter the mainstream of popular culture and media that will be biased toward democracy and fight for it. And in a nonpartisan way, like we'll fight for Liz, with Liz Cheney and 
Now, most Democrats would agree, disagree with 99%. Look, you know, I did all of debate prep for Liz's dad in 2000, 2004, which Liz ran. And I wrote this book about the Bush campaign in 2000, Bush-Cheney campaign, and I predicted that Liz would run for president. That was 2001. She was that impressive. So I wasn't surprised at all Liz is doing it. What I am surprised is it's 2022 and Liz Cheney is drummed out of the party. A Cheney. I mean, it's not about philosophy. They say, well, you know, they should, Democrats should elect Liz Speaker of the House. They're like, really? You think Liz Cheney's going to go out there to codify Roe? Are you like, <laughs> out of your mind? I mean, she'll fight for democracy, you know, with her last dying breath. But you do have a difference in political philosophy, which is fine. That's okay. It's like Joe Trippi, this legendary Democratic consultant who spent the last 30 years ruining my life because I had to go up against the guy, has now joined the you know, Lincoln Project. And Joe and I talk about this. You know, you go back and look at this stuff we fought over, which at the time seemed like, you know, Gettysburg. It was like whether or not the capital gains tax should be 28 or 32. I mean, you like laugh at it. Really? Really? We fought over that? If you have a democratic system, you get to keep having that fight. Yeah, I think man, what the other side wants is... People, you know, in 2016, and then used to say to me, hey, Stuart, you know, I live in Vermont now. Hey, if Bernie Sanders was a nominee, would you have voted for him? And I'm like, hell yeah. And I first encountered Bernie when I was riding my bicycle down the main street in Burlington, Vermont, when I was going to Middlebury College. And I saw this lunatic out there yelling about rent control. And it was Bernie running for mayor, which he won by eight votes. And which he did reasonably well at. <laughs> yeah, he was a good mayor. He actually turned out to be a very good mayor of Burlington. So, I mean, Bernie Sanders is to the right of many in the Republican Party on Putin. Wrap that around your mind. I mean, the guy may have honeymoon in Russia, but he didn't, like, marry Putin. So, yeah, I would have voted for Bernie. I would have gone door to door for the guy because he would have been a guy. I think the guy still supports democracy. When you talk about how democracies die, and I think you're invoking the book by that title, you say it doesn't happen in in volleys of cannon fire. It happens in the courthouse and at the ballot box. But I think an attendant requirement there is some complacency. And I worry about that after these midterms. 100%. At least in my orbit, there's this weird honeymoon period like, we made it, guys. We put the lie to the big lie, and we can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm sure that's not how you're thinking in Resolute Square. That's why, look at DeSantis. DeSantis will not say that Trump is elected, lost a fair election, right? And DeSantis is a guy who's an angry, strange guy, very well-educated, assume he's very smart, who manages to spend his political career bullying people. You know, this is a guy who got in a fight with the happiness company. Like, really? <laughs> you got in a fight with Peter Pan. Like, of all the issues to pick, you're going to pick Peter Pan? You know, I, I want to be in the room when you say, you know, man, what we need to do is... We need to charter this plane. We need to fly to Texas. We need to get to somebody to lie to a bunch of people who are here legally in the country seeking asylum. Fly on the Texas and go to Let's do it. Like, I've done a lot. I've been in a room for a lot of stuff, but I've never been in a room where someone said, like, what about rendition? That'll help us. It tests well. And 
It's election police. Florida passed overwhelmingly a law that former felons should be able to vote. Republicans came in and passed the law. They can't vote unless they pay any outstanding fines they have. But it's impossible to find out what outstanding fines you have. There is no mechanism. You can't go online and say, okay, this is what I owe. So guess what? Some of them didn't do it. They found 20 in the state of Florida that hadn't done it. And then as it turns out, like most of those, and he gets, has this big press conference, right? This is not a serious human being. This is a man who is running out of ambition. He has no purpose in running. And yet he's being you know, embraced by the National Review and this desperate attempt to make him into something. And it's very dangerous. You have to just fight it. You know, one thing I'll say about Bush War, you know, in 2000, 2004, we never thought we had it figured out. I mean, say what you will, you know, after we won Ohio in 2004, I tell you, man, I mean, we always thought we were lucky and it could have gone the other way. And we may have looked arrogant. I can't, I don't know how we came across, but I was in the room and we were always like, man, this could go either way. And we never thought that we had figured this out. And I think that there is a sense with a lot of Trumpist people, that they have figured it out. But, you know, look, I think as a political operative, I think the Biden operation doesn't get enough credit. I think they ran a brilliant campaign in 2020. You know, between 1976 and 2008, we had federal funding for presidential races which isn't a big deal to most people, but when you work in campaigns, it was everything. And what it meant was that both campaigns, once you had a nominee, literally when you walked off the stage of accepting the nomination, there was somebody there from the Treasury Department with a check. And it would be the same amount to both candidates. It would be 80 million, then it, it grew every year. I think 84 was the last amount, right? And they literally would give you a check and we're like, can you wire this? And you're like, no, we do checks. And it um, leveled the playing field because both candidates had the same amount of money. And it was post-Watergate reform, a lot to clean up money, but it also leveled the playing field. So Bush loses under that and Carter loses. So before that, you have to ask yourself, when was the last incumbent president to lose who was not in the federal funding system? And that was Herbert Hoover. And he had a bad year. So for the Biden campaign to beat an incumbent president, they became the first to do that since Herbert Hoover, not in the election, not in the election finance system where both candidates got same. That is incredible. Look, I, I did a Romney campaign, you know, man. It, it is incredibly difficult to do. And I think they have accomplished big stuff, big important stuff. They just did something that's pretty incredible in an off-year election. You know, the last time the House gained seats for the party in power was 2002. I was all over that race, right? So we decided to nationalize it uh, over domestic security, war on terror, right? And I can remember vividly, you know, being asked like December 20 of 2001, you know, it's just going to work. And our answer was like, we don't know, but it's the best chance we got. And they came very close to doing that. And that's only happened three times in the last 125 years. So I know a lot of these people, Ron Klain, Anita Dunn. I've gone up against him in races, particularly Anita I work with Ron on debate commission and Anita. They are very smart, serious people. And, you know, what I find so impressive about the Biden campaign is when they launched their primary, first entered the race, right? There was a, a theory in the Republic and the Democratic Party that was dominant, I think. Elizabeth Warren articulated the most that the 20 race should not be about Donald Trump. It made a lot of sense. 
the thinking went, you know, look, everybody in America has an opinion of Donald Trump, you're not going to change. So you got to make it about issues. And when Biden ran on the soul of the nation, he meant Trump and what Trumpism means. And that's what the Lincoln Project did, too. And this is before I joined him. So this isn't false. They went out and said that. And then he lost those first two primaries. And I can tell you, man, when a front runner gets crushed like that, there is tremendous hydraulic pressure to change your campaign. And it usually doesn't work, but you're not going to sit there and just lose without trying. The Biden campaign and Biden, they stuck with it. And damn if they didn't win. And I think that's just underappreciated how hard it is. That's like being in the Super Bowl. It's the end of the third quarter. You're down 24 points. And you go, we're going to stick to our game plan and you win. It's like, dude, well done. What stuck with me about that campaign and it was an offhand comment at the beginning, but I think it captured the essence of the whole strategy was which of these candidates is going to be able to take Donald Trump behind the woodshed, right? <laughs> and that's how Joe ran it. Yeah, you know, I think it's a classic case, which we see in politics, where what had been negatives for Biden before as a presidential candidate, kind of boring, been in government since he was 28. Usually the most inexperienced candidate gets elected president, weirdly. He is kind of a bland guy, not a super charismatic. Nobody ever accused you know, Joe Biden of being a super charismatic guy. And all of a sudden, those things became seen in a different light. Where being in government since he was 28, I mean, he actually was competent at a time when no one was competent in the government. Being boring was a time, the flip side of boring is stable, not dramatic. The flip side of being bland is you're not waking up every day to work to use the office to work through personal issues. What were negatives have become assets. The same thing happened when Churchill won. You know, he had been this bellicose kind of weirdo, you know, failed. All of a sudden you needed like a bellicose weirdo to run the country, save the country. Same with Margaret Thatcher. Kind of harsh, shrill, backbencher. We're always just spending too much. We're always like, you know, she went from being fingernails on a chalkboard to the Iron Lady. And history has a weird way of doing that. And I, I think Biden will win. I assume Biden's going to be the nominee and we'll see again. You've said that there's no saving the Republican Party that we're experiencing today and that the only the only solution, your words, is to burn it down. Where do those Republicans go? Do you think you think they're going to reconstitute as the forward party? Do you think We'll get enough of them in the Democratic Party. I mean, have you... Which Republicans? You mean the Republicans that vote for... Both? Not the Camp Auschwitz t-shirt Republicans, but, you know, the ones who know how to use a fork. Well, so take Arizona as a case, right? You have this guy who's governor of Arizona named Doug Ducey, who was kind of like a typical Republican. Boring, sane, smart guy, business guy. He ran the state okay. He was an okay governor. He hated Kerry Lake. He had a candidate who was more like him, ran in the primary. She lost. So what Doug Ducey should have said was, the guy's not running for re-election. He'll probably never run for anything else in his life. He should have said, I'm not going to support Kerry Lake. She's a lunatic. She wants to fire the federal government. Are you out of your mind? You ever look around Arizona? Without the federal government, you know what Arizona would be? It's a desert. You take away the military bases, take away the national parks. You're going to quit sending Social Security checks to people. I mean, these border guards, shit, all that federal government shit. We don't need that. Like, are you out of your mind? You know, he's not going to vote for this lunatic that's going to, you know, make Arizona laughing stock of the country. He said he endorsed Carrie Lake. 
you look at uh, Yonkin in Virginia. So look, I'll admit there was a time when Yonkin would have seemed like a great candidate to me. Had a lot of money, seemed like an okay guy. And I think he ran a very racist campaign, which he didn't believe at all on the CRT. But everybody said, that's just to get elected. Once he gets elected, I mean, come on, man, give me a break. This is the kind of guy we need. Okay, he's out campaigning for Kerry Lake. So it's when those people say no. The essential question now is the one McConnell got the other day and wouldn't answer. Will you support Donald Trump if he's a Republican nominee? And there's only a handful of prominent Republicans now who say no. I don't know if you saw McConnell's non-condemnation condemnation after Donald Trump had a white supremacist at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, he but- wouldn't say Donald Trump's name. Yeah. I mean, here's a guy, you would think, if nothing else, a guy held a press conference to humiliate McConnell's wife. You would think, if nothing else, it would be like, dude, that's enough. I'll say your name. Like, I mean, that's not exactly saying I'm going to meet you at midnight outside the Waffle House in the parking lot. All you're doing is saying your name. That's a pretty low bar. And the guy doesn't have the courage to say his name. I mean, what are you going to do with these people? And they'll all support Donald Trump. It's just like all these people that, like the NASA Review and all these people, they go, well, we never formally endorsed Donald Trump. Neither did Fox. But they supported him. So... You have to just beat these people. Now, you do have demographics. You say, what's going to happen to a lot of these Trump Republicans? I can tell you, they're going to die. That's what's going to happen to them. You know, I mean, what people forget or don't think about because they have a life and they don't do this, you know, fortunate enough this not to be their world, right? In many ways, Donald Trump performed as a regular Republican. The only group that Donald Trump won by income, $150,000 or more. Donald Trump didn't win the working class. He won the white working class. Well, so did Mitt Romney. He didn't win evangelicals. He won white evangelicals. He got crushed by black evangelicals. They're the ones that saved Alabama, you know, from uh, accused pedophile. So it's, look at Arizona as another perfect example, right? What saved Arizona from Carrie Lake getting elected? One single thing you can point to, that young voters. Look at the university precincts in Arizona. And they went for Hobbs at like 85 plus. And without that, she would have lost. So, you know, I think the Republican Party has made a huge mistake just in a cultural sense of the cultural wars they're trying to fight now. There are not many under 35 voters that are worried about who they're going to see in the bathroom, which is Ron DeSantis' you know, campaign. There's not many under 35 voters who want to ban abortion completely. And, and look at what happened in 20. Republican Party managed to get on the wrong side of a cultural war with NASCAR all over the Confederate flag. They got on the wrong side of, of a cultural war over masking with Walmart. So like, I mean, dude, man, you're, you're like, you're losing NASCAR and Walmart. I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, from being a Mississippian, your average teenager, and Mr. white teenager in Mississippian were a lot, they aspire to be a black rap star more than they do to be Robert E. Lee. I mean, they're not drawn to all this, you know, racist stuff at all. So um, what is the fastest declining large demographic, political demographic in America? Non-college educated white people. 1980, they were 60 plus percent of the, of the electorate. They're now 40 
and declining. So we're headed to minority-majority country. And Republicans, on some level, know this, which is why they're so desperately trying to change how people vote. Well, that's just it. This idea that demographics are going to save us assumes that the institutions of democracy allow those democratic trends to express themselves. But if minoritarian rule (laughs) is cemented through law, demographics don't matter as much. And they know this. That's why they have 47 different pieces of legislation uh, in place, ready to go. These, somebody didn't just wake up after January 6th and said, hey, you know, we should come up with these state legislature uh, laws to propose. They've been working on this for a long time. These are dangerous people. I know these people. And the fact that they do not appear to be evil, but what they are trying to do is evil. The banality of evil. <laughs> and if that's not 1930s Germany, what the hell is? Yeah, no, you're right. Um, Well, I've held you for long enough, Stuart. I'm a silver linings kind of guy. This has been a dark interview, but I- I'm very depressing, Kim. (laughs) When I wrote, it was all a lie, and I gave a draft of it to a good friend of mine who's a Republican. I said, you know, it's short but depressing. And he said, Stuart, so are suicide notes. So (laughs) uh, you can always go down to the pound and watch some gas puppies to cure up, though, you know, after talking to me. I will say one of the things that I have found, even during the rise of Trumpism, prompted by the rise of Trumpism, is that this community that has risen up to fight it is comprised of some of the best human beings I've ever known. You know some of who I'm talking about, the Dan Barkoffs of the world. Who just got banned from Twitter, it appears. Did he? (laughs) Yeah, well, he's been quiet lately, so that must be why. Yeah, and I know you're you're tough on on your own consulting class, but some giants have risen up there to fight back as well, and we'll keep following. Excited about what Resolute Square is doing, and let's talk again soon. Thanks, Thanks for asking me on. You got it. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks again to Stuart for joining me. You can find him on Twitter at Stuart P. Stevens. And make sure to check out his book, It Was All a Lie. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.